Our gracious God and King, we come before you now, Lord, and we just stand in awe of your grace and your goodness. And Lord, sometimes we take advantage of statements like that we are a child of God. And Lord, we are, are, as we sing this song, we are reminded of the fact that, that that is our identity. That is who we are. That is the relationship that we have with you. And, and so often we don't feel that way because we are, are struggling with our sin. We are doing battle against such things. And, and, and we feel like you are a thousand miles away. But God, I'm reminded right now of the, the story of the prodigal son. And even though that, that prodigal was, was miles away and, and, and living so far from his father and, and, and starving and dirty and, and unclean and, and even to the point of, of wanting to eat the food that was designated for the pigs, he never ceased to be the father's son. And when that son came to his senses and when he went to his father hoping just to be a servant, just to be a slave in his household, his father embraced him and, and put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. And he said, my son that was dead is alive. God, there's probably some of us in this room who feel hundreds of miles away from you, who feel like you have forgotten about them, who, who feel unclean and unworthy to be called your children. But God, you are most certainly like that father. And that you are eager, you are looking to the horizon, you are, are excited about today. Because today may very well be the day that they come to their senses. We don't know that, but you know that. And they will come to you and you will embrace them like a loving father. And they will be rejoicing in heaven because the son that was dead has been made alive in Christ. Lord, help us to remember our sonship as we get into the word this morning. And may we be called like the prodigal and even as our song implies, may we be called to draw near to you so that we may experience the fullness of your love and your grace. But we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we can continue in our study of the book of James, we're going to be in James chapter 4 today. And we're going to be reading the first 12 verses of James chapter 4. I know you probably feel like you have been up and down a little bit this uh, Sunday as far as standing up and sitting down. But I would ask that you stand one more time for me, and Joe's probably going to make you stand also, as we honor the reading of God's Word, which is James cha- in James chapter 4. And the Word of God says this, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder and you are envious and cannot obtain. You, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have what you, what you, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to us on purpose or to no purpose? 
He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Please be seated. I came across a quote as I was preparing for um, our time together this morning that read, Choosing to live an extraordinary life is simple. This does not, however, mean that it is easy. I think all too often we get the word simple and the word easy mixed up. We think that if something is simple or if there is a simple answer, that therefore it means that there is an easy answer and that doesn't take into account how complicated a situation or that life may be. I think it goes without saying that life can be a very complicated thing. As we deal with relationships, whether that's relationships within our family or outside of our family, the things that we deal with at work, the economy, politics, um, all of the things that kind of make our lives interested, interesting can also very much so make our lives complicated. And I have heard a lot recently that since life is so complicated, we cannot accept simple answers to, life, to life's complicated questions. And because of that, the, the implication behind there is that when we have good, sound, biblical advice and we present good, sound, biblical advice that appears to be simple or even elementary that we just immediately dismiss it out of hand because there is no way a simple answer can be the solution to the complicated problems that we have today. In our passage today, we find James addressing a multitude of problems that existed within the early church. And yet, he gives them a very simple answer to their problems. I believe that everything that Paul is saying is, is summed up in the statement, draw near to God. But as the quote that started our time together says, simple does not mean easy. But with that, simple may still very well be the answer. So let's dive into our, our text a little bit this morning and let's begin by focusing on the source of the complications that, that James is addressing. James 4 begins with quite a list of issues that existed within the church. He mentions quarrels and conflicts, lust, murder, envy, fighting, poverty, rejection from even of our prayers or of each other as all problems that existed in the church at that time. 
Now, I'm going to be honest with you for a moment. That kind of makes me feel good. Because if the church that is immediately following the resurrection, where all the apostles are still doing their things, where miracles are happening, tongues are, are, people are speaking in tongues left and right, it seems like. It probably wasn't really that way. And we just see the Holy Spirit moving in such huge and fantastic ways. If the church had problems then, maybe we're not as bad as we sometimes think we are. And maybe we shouldn't believe the press all the time when people try to tell us how awful evangelical churches are today. The church has had problems from the beginning. The church has problems today. And that is why the word of God matters just as much today as it did back then. But the, but the things that he points out as present in the church is preceded with this question. What is the source Where are these things coming from? And that is a great question that I think all of us need to sometimes step back and ask ourselves when we are are, are experiencing uh, hostility and sin and issues, even within the church. Undoubtedly, if you have been here long enough, there has been some point at some time where you've kind of gotten your feathers ruffled about either something going on in the church or with someone else in the church. If you have not, praise God, we're so glad that you joined us for the first time today. (laughs) Give us time. And so he asked the question, what is the source? Where are these things coming from? Take a step back and ask yourself the question, why is this happening? And James answers that question as well. First, he points to their pleasures. Your translation may also use the word passion, but it's an interesting word, and it's actually a Greek word where we get the word hedonism. And so these pleasures that James is talking about relates to those fleshly, sensual, earthly desires that we often have. He is saying that the problem that they are the problems that they are experiencing are a result of indulging in their sinful fallen nature now just to step back and i'm gonna i'm gonna step on toes for just a second this is why i don't like the statement well we're only human in sunday school class i like that statement less than it depends because when we say well i'm only human which is true and i i'll grant you that we are allowing ourselves to accept and normalize the very root of what causes so many problems within the church. When we even look at verse 5, and there's some debate on how verse 5 is supposed to be read, but I, I like a, a translation a little bit better that says that our, the spirit that dwells in us lusts with jealousy. It is pointing out to the, the, the very nature and reality that our fallen nature leads us to be prone towards envy and lust and jealousy and trying to not only fulfill our fleshly desires, but also be envious of those who do get to. It is for this reason that Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. That's Romans thirteen fourteen. 
so often, and we don't always recognize it because we're in the midst of all of it, but so often when we have conflict, when we have issues, when we have problems in our life, and and I don't want to say all the time because that's not how this always works, but so often it is because we feel like we have a right to enjoy fleshly things that God never had in store for us. And because we choose to want the things that the world tells us that we should want, we end up giving in to sin that leads to conflict and issues. And instead of us saying, well, everybody's human, we should say, I am striving to make no provision for the flesh in my life. James explains this a little bit further in verse 4, and I want to read this to you. He says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Here he calls this indulging of our pleasures, indulging of our lusts as friendship with the world. So what does he mean by this? Well, John talks about it a little bit in 1 John 2.15 when he says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in him. So this friendship with the world is a desire for the things that this fallen world, this corrupt world, has to offer. Often through disobedience to God. And it's choosing what the world has to offer through disobedience to God over what God has to offer through obedience to Him. Now, guys, this is just a good definition of what sin is, period. When we choose the things of this world and do so in disobedience to God, and when we choose those things over what God has offers freely and has promised us through obedience, we are sinning against God. And just on what is being said in the passage, I think the major problem that the early church was facing that James is now addressing is they wanted to dabble in both worlds. Dave Markham would call these people fence riders. They wanted to still enjoy and partake in the things of the world and the things that the world offers while at the same time wanting to enjoy the blessings and the favor of the benefits of being a child of God, which, which you are a child of God if indeed you are in Christ. But they were beginning to recognize that they could not have both and that they were missing out on the fullness of a relationship with God, and in doing so, they were earning for themselves a host of problems. Now, that's us. It's me. I'm going to tell you right now, that's me. There are times in my life where you know I want the blessings and favor of God. I want the, the wisdom and the clarity and the purpose, and, and I want to know that, that I'm taken care of and the confidence and, and the, 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 the solidarity, and I want the fellowship and the relationship, and I want all of that stuff, and I want that, and, 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 and I'm here because I want those things, and I try to be obedient to God, but I kind of want some of the things the world has to offer too. I want the quick fix. I want the overindulgence. I want the huge slice of chocolate cake when I've already eaten too much. And sometimes I look at what someone posts on Instagram or what what the the Budweiser company is trying to life they're trying to sell me, and I, I can't help but think, man, that'd be fun. 
And sometimes I indulge that with the cake, not the Budweiser. Just make that clear before we call a special business meeting. And it's very tempting to want to try to ride that fence and try to dabble in both worlds. But when I try to do that, when I try to live for the Lord, but also still kind of hold some things back so that I can enjoy the the pleasures of this world, I find myself not only missing out on the fullness of God's love and his grace and his peace and his joy, but I find that the indulgence of those things leads me to problems. Whether that's a severed relationship with one of you, a strained relationship with my wife or my children, the feelings of failure and inadequacy that often come with sin. James is straight forward when he's talking about this modern day idolatry. He says, you adulteresses, you can't have both. When I gave myself to my wife in marriage, I gave her 100% of me. I didn't give her 90% of me, but nothing. But then when I went off on my own, I got to still act like a bachelor. I gave her 100%. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are supposed to give him 100%. But if we still hold on to certain idols in certain areas of our heart, we are guilty of exactly what James says. We are committing adultery against the one who sent his son to die for us. And these complications in the church are the result of people who are giving in to their fallen and idolatrous hearts. It makes us look at church drama a little bit differently, huh? Imagine if you heard about church drama in one church or another and undoubtedly in this church because this church is not free of its drama. And the only thing you said is, you know, there's just still a lot of idolatry in this church. And there's a lot of little idols that even I still carry into this room. And I'm not willing to cast down. See, it's not a personality problem. It's not a culture problem. It's not a generational problem. It's an idolatry problem. And even though we sometimes we, rec- we have these problems and we want to seek them out, often the, the first step in finding peace and resolution is for us to acknowledge the idol in our heart and to throw it into the fire. But what does James say the solution is? Well, that's what I've already told you, so you should know the answer, and that is to draw near to God. And as we mentioned already, we look at something like that and we say, but that's such a simple solution and that, that it almost feels like that church speak, right? Like I can say, well, you just, you know, if you came up to me and said, man, I'm, I'm, my wife, my marriage is struggling and I've got a bunch of financial problems and, and I just, when I go to church, I just don't feel anything anymore and I'm just really going through it, just really going through a hard time, uh, pastor, what should I do? And I just said, well, draw near to God. 
Now, if you're trying to cover it up and make yourself, you know, make me think you're really spiritual, you'll go, you know, you're exactly right, preacher. But if you were honest, you'd probably go, what does that mean? What do you mean draw near to God? Do I need to move closer to the church building? Or do I need to go on a trip to the Vatican or to uh, Jerusalem or, 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 you know, some one of those things? Do I need to take a retreat to some holy place? No, that's not what I mean at all. In fact, what I mean by draw near to God is to do the hard things. To strengthen your relationship with the Lord. If we want to experience the love of God and the fullness of this life, we are going to have to do some hard things. So let me kind of take the book of James and just show you kind of how he explains this statement of draw near to God. First, James calls the people to humble themselves. And I will tell you flat out, I cannot think of anything harder for an individual to do than humble themselves. So what does to humble yourself look like? It means to acknowledge that you are not the captain of your own ship, that you are not in charge of, of your own course and your own life, that you are not the, the sole one that gets to decide what your future or your fate is. It is realizing that you are completely dependent on God for all things for your air, for your food, for your success, for your family safety and well-being, that everything has to be handed over to God and that God can take those things in an instant. I'm reminded, and, and he may be watching so I may get in trouble, but I'm reminded of, of my dad. And my dad um, got a job with the state of Missouri and he was a facility manager in Springfield, Missouri. And so he moved to Springfield. He loved it. It was a good job. It was a great place to, for him to, to close out his, his career and, and, and a place to retire. And my dad was doing well. And I'm not saying my dad like got far from God. That's not what I'm saying at all. But my dad was well and he was secure. And I've told this story before. And, and one day as things happen, when you work for the government, there was an election and one party that was kind of in charge at the time was no longer in charge. And another party came in to office, the governor and, and several other places. And, uh, and things started to change. Now, technically, my dad's job should not have been affected by that. If you think about kind of the, the hierarchy or the flow chart, my dad's job was one step below a, a government appointee, meaning that whoever was governor got to have that, put that person in that office. He was one step below that. So his job should not have been affected. And yet, one day after the election, his boss came in and said, we need to talk. And they sat down my dad and they said, pack up your things, you're done. And just like that, my dad's career, my dad's retirement, my dad's, my dad's major source of income, everything was gone. That's how fast things can change. Now, praise be to God, the Lord provides and he took care of my dad. And, and even now my dad is retired. He is doing so much better after his, uh, his uh, liver thing. I will say that he is going in, he went in, I think this last week, um, because there may be a blockage in his liver and they're going to be deciding how to deal with that. But you know what? He's not worried about that part anymore. But it can change that quick. And our lives can change that quick. And many of you know what I'm talking about because you've had your life changed that quick. 
And we need to recognize that no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, no matter how, if we do everything right, that, that it is still God behind all of it. And that he is providing and that he is moving us and he is guiding, direct, guiding and directing our path in every way, shape, and form. A biblical example we could find in Daniel chapter 4 as we look at King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar um, was the, the king of Babylon at the height of Babylon's reign. Before Persia came in and took them over, he was the dominant force, the superpower hegemon in the area that he was. And he was wealthy. His, his land had expanded. He had everything he could ever desire. And he was warned that God was going to, pun it, was going to humble him. And one day it says that, that King Nebuchadnezzar was out looking at the balcony and looking at the city of Babylon and all that he had created. And he, he said, look at this. Does this not glorify my name? And in that moment, God turned him into what I can only describe as a wild man. And he lost all reason And he was driven by God from his palace to go live out in the wilderness. And he lived for a season like a wild animal until God restored his his reasoning. And in Daniel chapter 4 verse 37, we hear the very words of Nebuchadnezzar when he says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So the first step in drawing near to God is recognizing that God is God. And that he is the source of all of our blessings. And we should acknowledge him in all his ways. The second thing we see in our passage is a call to repent. As we look in all of it, we see these, these statements like resist the devil and he will flee, flee from you, as well as this call to mourn over sin and to turn their, their, their rejoicing into mourning. See, when we humble ourselves, we begin to see our sin for what it is and we can begin to turn from our sin and turn towards God. James is describing the godly sorrow that we find in 2 Corinthians 7 where it says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. See, this godly sorrow led them to a place of repentance, that this sorrow over sin caused a change and led them to turn back from the way that they were going. Finally, there is a call to submit to the authority of God. Notice these all build on each other. Resisting the devil and submitting to God is two sides of the same coin. Paul explains it in his letter to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. That's Romans 6, 12, and 13. 
See, when we submit ourselves to God, we are saying to him, I'm in. It is your way, your timing, and your will be done. I heard it just recently said this way, I'm done. God, I can't do this anymore. I've done it my way. I've done it in, in, the, in my walk. I've done it kind of in the, the pride of this life, and I've seen the consequences. I'm done. I'm trusting in you. I am trusting in your way. I am repenting of the sin that has had such a firm hold on me, and I am surrendering myself. I am submitting myself to your will. It means obeying his word, following the lead of the Holy Spirit, and making the great commission and the greatest commandments foremost in your life. And it should come to no surprise that this is the gospel call in a nutshell. In fact, if we can put up the three circles, Liz, if you have that up to put up. When we look at the three circles, we are acknowledging these three areas. There it is. Go ahead and do the whole thing. When we recognize that God has a design, we are humbling ourselves and recognize that God has a design and that we have not followed that, that our way is not better than God's way. That takes humility, does it not? And that we recognize that we have to humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin and then we have to repent from our sin, turning from our sin and believing and submitting to the will of God. In fact, in Romans 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And in the midst of all of that is a humbling yourself, repenting of sin, and submitting yourself to the will of God. See, to draw near to God is to believe the gospel message. And in your belief to act. Which leads us to one question, and that is, are you drawing near? Now, I want to explain what I mean when I ask that question. As we close up our time together, I want you to take special note of these last couple of verses in our passage today. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. Who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, how are you a doer of the law but not a judge of it? This is, there is only one lawgiver and judge and the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James closes out this section with a reproof of anyone who would condemn his brother or sister in Christ. Now I want you to keep that in the context of everything we've just said. As we finish all this out, James has been addressing hypocrisy and sin in the church, that they, that they have the conflicts and all that they have been dealing with. And I have no doubt that in the midst of all that, they were being hypocritically judgmental and quick to condemn others. And he is just saying that everyone who hears this letter needs to check their hearts and intentions first. It is so easy for us to look around the room and think about who needs to be listening right now. Or you're hoping that someone who's not here may stumble across this on Facebook Live and that they might hear it and be convicted. I have heard in the past many times, and you guys have learned not to do this, and I appreciate it. Um, to, the, I've heard so many times in the past people come up to me and say, I just wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. 
And when we think about the sovereignty of God, I just want to go, but you were here. So God had a divine appointment for you and you are here today because you need to hear this sermon. Don't worry about the person sitting next to you or across the pew or on the or whoever's watching online. Think about how does this speak to you today? As we have seen throughout James' letter, he is pulling directly from Jesus' teachings in this statement. In Matthew chapter 7, we read these words, Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your statements, by your standard of measure, you will be measured. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When we look at a passage like this, we need to make sure that we are first looking to ourselves. Now, does this mean that you can never at any point in ministry go to someone and say, hey, I've been noticing this in your life and in your walk, and I think that something is wrong and that you need to to maybe take this to the Lord? No, of course you can do that. God calls us to do that. Paul says just as much. Of course we need to go to our brothers and point out sin that they may not see. However, always, always, always we are called to first look to ourselves and make sure that we are walking with the Lord. And in a passage like this, we need to ask ourselves, are there complications in our life? Are there things in our life, is there drama, is there, is there, is there um, issues, is there, there um, anxiety, is there, is there things going on in our life that may point to the fact that I am not drawing near to God as I should? Do I still have a tiny idol in a portion of my heart that I have not cast down? Are we far from God and need to come draw near to Him through saving faith? Or do we simply need to return to get return to doing the hard task that has been set before us of surrendering to God, humbling ourselves, repenting of sin, and submitting to the will of God? Now that's not a question I can answer for you. That's a question I have to answer for me. And that's not a question that you can answer for someone else. It is a question you have to answer for you. God is calling you today, regardless of whether you are a a, a believer in Christ or, or you are here trying to figure all this out. God is calling you to draw near to him. How are you going to respond today? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and King, we thank you so much for your word. God, we recognize that you are at work in this church. And God, we hear the the gospel call to draw near to you. God, I, I believe that there are some of us in this room that the call to draw near to you needs to begin by placing their hope and their trust and their faith in you. 
God, I pray that if that is your will for them, and, and, I, and the Bible says that it is, but if, if the Spirit is working them, Lord, you would just stir up their heart that they would humble themselves before you, that they would repent of their sin and they would submit themselves to you, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord of their lives. But God, I know for most of us in this room and for many of us certainly in this room, we have stumbled in the task of drawing near to you. That there are areas of our lives and and there are pieces of our heart where we have not humbled ourselves to you, that we have built up little idols, where we have chosen this world and the consequences over you and trusting in you. And Father God, I pray that today is the day that we cast down those idols. Lord, that we fully surrender ourselves to you, that we humble ourselves, that we repent, that we, that we submit ourselves to you. <coughs> and Lord, that we let your light shine in some of the dark places of our heart so that we might begin to experience the peace and the love and the joy that you have promised us and experience it to the fullness that you intended. But God, I pray that you work in our hearts today so that all of us leave here today with a desire to draw near to you. God, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.